Uh, thank you very much for coming. Uh, if you were here last time, thank you for coming back. Um, it was November then. I was talking in the dark. Uh, since when, there's been some cheering news for the book trade and for book lovers, as reported by the BBC at the end of December. Apparently, book sales over the Christmas period were vigorous. Even if the majority of business did flow through the software portals of tax-allergic multinational internet retailers rather than across the till at <coughs> high street stores or independent bookshops. The bulletin that carried this uplifting item offered a teaser in its opening lines by announcing that several of the top 10 best-selling Yuletide titles came from an unexpected genre and not just from the usual glut of celebrity autobiographies, that seasonal outpouring which, in the radio newsreader's dry voice, sounded like a description of the winter vomiting bug. Hooked by the tantalising prospect of an unaccustomed literary category outperforming all those ghost-written glossy hardbacks, many of them unironically entitled My Story. I eased into the slow lane of the M62, turned up the volume and waited to hear that Poetry's star had risen. It had not. <laughs> in fact, the publications that had shifted in such industrial quantities, two million in some cases, fell under the category colouring books for adults <laughs> and contained no words whatsoever, just blank spaces awaiting the application of a coloured pen or pencil. Colouring books for adults, I should point out, are not quite the same thing as adult colouring books. As I discovered when I mistakenly entered that term into the computer, then rapidly deleted my search history. A spokesman for one of the publishers behind the colouring book phenomenon, when interviewed, made a rehearsed connection between colouring in and mindfulness, 2015's go-to pop philosophy concept, and explained how filling in small delineated areas of blank paper helped put a person in touch with their moment-to-moment self-conscious experience. A number of cynical and quick-fingered tweeters contacted the programme immediately to wonder if the publisher hadn't confused mindfulness with mindlessness, <laughs> arguing that colouring in was such an infantile and undemanding activity, it could only appeal to those with little or no mind to fill in in the first place. Or at best, it represented a form of displacement therapy, diverting the mind from the detail of actual life, tranquilising the thought process, and diffusing focus. Although I don't associate colouring books with the intellectual advancement of the species per se, I've always been intrigued by the human habit of opening up empty spaces, then inviting imaginative intrusion or occupation. After all, it's a practice that stands at the foundation of most drawing, from fine art to functional design. And the relationship between what is evident and invisible, between the offered and the withheld, seems to me to be one of the crucial dynamics by which poetry proceeds, both on the page and in the airwaves. Anyone who's flicked through the pages of a poetry anthology or collection, no matter how casually, can't have failed to notice the lavish ratio of empty whiteness to black letters and the peculiar metamorphosis of silhouettes and patterns, dancing and shape-shifting as the pages turn. And anyone who's dug into the local geology beneath Eliot's proofrock can't help but imagine the expunged pervigilium section actually travelling on in that single-line hiatus 
like one of those underground streams below a dry, dry limestone valley. From where the authorised version disappears down the drain of the ellipsis after of lonely men in shirt sleeves leaning out of windows to where it bubbles up again at I should have been a pair of ragged claws. Just as anyone from the poetry community who attended the service of thanksgiving for Ted Hughes at Westminster Abbey in May 1999, and it was an impressively united turnout, will have experienced the physical enactment of the relationship between noise and noiselessness as a recording of Hughes reading Fear No More, The Heat of the Sun from Shakespeare's Cymbeline boomed out from the Abbey's PA system. Hughes, recognised as one of the most magnetic and compelling readers of his work, enunciating from beyond the grave into one of the most capacious and sonically receptive architectural voids in the country. In his second full-length collection, 1997's 1997's God's Gift to Women, Don Patterson seized on the more comic aspects of omission and emptiness by pushing the idea towards its near-literal conclusion. Here's the poem 1045 Dundee Ward Road. I'll give you a moment or so to take it in. And 36 pages later, the same device is re-employed in On Going to Meet a Zen Master in the Kyushu Mountains and Not Finding Him. Here it is in its entirety. For those people listening to the podcast iteration of this lecture, wondering what the hell's going on, all I can say is, you had to be here, really. The humour in the first of those poems might be drawn from the same well or even the same sketch as Alexi Sale's appearance at the secret policeman's other ball in 1981, when the alternative comedian walked onto stage and introduced himself as the gossip columnist for a magazine called What's On in Stoke Newington. He said, you might have seen it, it's a big piece of paper with fuck all written on it. The second poem recalls mindfulness again, combining the importance of emptiness in Buddhist teaching with a reference to the hippie quest, travellers on the spiritual highway heading to exotic eastern locations in the hope of finding themselves. At the end of the book, following four blank pages, like a hidden track after several minutes of silence at the end of a CD, Patterson appends a final italicised quatrain that runs, Of this white page, ask no more sense than of the skies, though you may believe the rain his tears, the wind his grief, the snow his shredded evidence. Finishing with an unclosed parenthesis, the gate to the abyss left wide open. For literary geocaches, the missing bracket eventually turns up embedded in the boilerplate of a later collection. Patterson is reported as saying that a poem is the only art form that can be held entirely intact in the mind, or words to that effect. It's a challenging and provocative claim. He means, I think, that we can't mentally reassemble all the component parts of an opera or the complex visual elements of a painting, or even the sheer scale of a novel by thinking about it, but we can, just about, recall and remake something about half a page long, a thing often mnemonically inclined by nature. I like the boldness with which that observation's made, but does it take into account certain fundamental aspects of a poem's existence? Namely, those unarticulated parts that form a poem's reader's peripheral vision. The verges and aprons of a poem just beyond the focus of the eye and the understanding of the literal mind. The poem's untranscribed outfield. As poets, we don't enjoy many privileges. 
But one birthright I'm always especially keen to uphold is the ownership of the page. Prose fills a page. Once that page is full, it fills up the next one. And the dimensions and capacity of those pages are usually worked out in editorial and marketing meetings beyond the earshot of the author. Poetry stakes out position on a page, takes a shape, occupies territory, becomes its own autonomous region. Surrounding the poem stands an apparent blankness, but one that conceals many of the poem's codes and switches, populated by the incorporeal, whispering words that have been deliberately and carefully excluded from view. Such oxygenated spaces, such ventilated cavities between titles and first lines, between stanzas and verses, beyond the line break, where the mind's vapour trail overshoots and the imagination undergoes millimetres of freefall and milliseconds of weightless abeyance before the eyes fully execute the carriage return procedure. This airspace is our one inherited kingdom. We might work with the same material as prose writers and form part of the same industry, but I've always felt I had more in common with the visual artist or even the cartoonist than the novelist. And when I hand in my pieces, I don't expect them to be portioned out. I expect them to be framed. The Anglo-American poet Michael Donaghy is an absence in his own right, a much-missed presence on the poetry writing scene and poetry reading circuit. He died in 2004 at the age of 50, leaving a Donaghy-shaped hole in the middle of our generation, the so-called new generation. Ever been tattooed, it takes a whim of iron, he wisecracks in the opening line of his poem, Liverpool. As the poem moves from observation to narrative, and from narrative to anecdote, and from anecdote to autobiography, we meet Tracy, who confessed she'd had hers done one legless night with her ex. Heart, arrow, even the bastard's initials, RLJ, somewhere where it hurt, she said. And when I asked her where, snapped, <laughs> Liverpool. From the leglessness, through to the absence of the unnamed former boyfriend, through to the tattoo's hidden location, and onward to the surgical removal resulting in a strip of pink and glassy flesh. The undisclosed facts and withheld information build incrementally to that self-same mark of Valentinus, who was flayed for love, but who never, so the cardinals now say, existed. Desanctified, apocryphal, like Christopher, like the scar you never showed me, Trace, your, your ex, your Liverpool. Pretending to ask the reader not to see that patch of scar tissue on or close to some erotic part of Trace's body is the same as cognitive linguist George Lakoff asking us not to think of an elephant. It's impossible. And it's an impossibility Donaghy seemed to relish when reciting that poem to an audience. It was his party piece, something of a theme tune even. With his lips theatrically closed, he'd signal that parenthesized omission with a horizontal movement of the hand. A conductor or conjurer summoning up the desired effect out of the invisible and the silent. I was thinking of Michael Donaghy and his poem one night in November last year, crossing the Pennines to take part in a launch event for a new exhibition at Tate Liverpool. The idea was to get there early, peruse the collection, then respond by reading thematically appropriate poems, a sort of whose line is it anyway, but without the fun. It was dark and stormy in the northwest when I drove through the gates of the renovated Albert Dock and onto the waterfront, past the Beatles story exhibition. The Fab Four were natives of that city I was interested to discover. I can't understand 
why Liverpool hasn't done more to capitalise on that connection. <laughs> then along a cobbled pier until the sat-nav became disorientated and panicky and started giving directions in Flemish. At one point, I find myself steering towards the ferry terminal, next stop the Isle of Man, or that place the Gawain poet refers to as the Wilderness of Wirral. Eventually, a service road delivered me to the Tate's loading bay and wheelie bin storage area, and a security guard escorted me to the bottom of a goods elevator, and a member of staff pointed me in the direction of the exhibition and left me to it. It's an extraordinary privilege to be alone in an art gallery, to share a personal and individuated connection with an artwork, and to feel that connection amplified and intensified by the venue's enclosed emptiness, an experience not unlike prayer in a sacred building, a private and unspoken communication, but a highly self-conscious and conspicuous act when performed in isolation and set against larger-than-life structural dimensions. Though in truth, it wasn't the greatest show on earth. Many of the exhibits were abstract and conceptual in a style that fails to excite or surprise anymore. And at one point, CCTV cameras in the gallery will have captured me putting on my glasses and bending forward to examine an ornately fashioned black and red tubular installation in a far corner, which on closer inspection revealed itself to be a fire hose inlet. <laughs> but the space was the thing, and being alone in it, and being in it under the disquieting spell of the exhibition's title, an imagined museum, drawing on Ray Bradbury's dystopian novel Fahrenheit 451, set in a world where books are banned and literature can only survive through being learnt by heart. At some future date, it might well have already happened, all the artworks in an imagined museum will be removed and there will be a day of remembering, where members of the public are invited back to stand in the empty gallery and recall what they can of particular paintings and sculptures. I found that notion very haunting, very moving, and went home to look for a book I'd read, then forgotten about, one that contained a description of Misha Ullman's memorial to the Nazi book burning of 1933, that toughened glass pane set into the cobbles of Berlin's Babelplatz above an illuminated library of empty shelves. The book I was thinking of was Ivan Vladislavich's The Lost Library and Other Unfinished Stories. Conducted in a modest, low-key tone, it's a lament for several stories the South African author never got around to actually writing. The phantom pregnancies of novels and novellas, a, a retrospective investigation into what might have been drawn from the crime scenes of his own notebooks. As a metaphor for that exploration, he invokes the presence of Peter Freuken, the Danish adventurer and author who reportedly hacked his way out of an ice cave in which a snowstorm had entombed him using a handcrafted chisel made from his own excrement. Here is the shy and retiring Freuken, with his wife Dagmar Gale, the acclaimed fashion illustrator occasionally described as a Danish margarine heiress. In the first chapter, The Last Walk, Vladislavich meditates on a photograph of the body of Swiss writer Robert Volser, aged 78, lying dead in the snow not far from the mental institution where he spent his final years. There's something both compellingly tragic and disturbingly aloof about the picture. Vladislavich invites us to imagine the photographer setting up a tripod at a cool distance, adjusting the exposure and the focal length, and then composing the shot. And even though Vladislavich doesn't say as much, there's something subconsciously poetic about the black shape surrounded by a white margin, 
the body of the text, as it were, under the title of the fallen hat. I shouldn't go on about the lost library too much since it is, at the end of the day, prose, and I don't want to find myself in breach of contract. Although with its extravagantly wide and empty margins framing dark columns of print, it certainly does a good job of mimicking the geometry and geography of poetry. And nowhere is it any less lyrical than, for example, Claudia Rankin's Citizen. Yet with its persistent subtext of absence and omission, I wanted to acknowledge it as the instigating agent for this lecture today. The universe is mainly made of thought, begins Franz Wright, who died last year in his poem, Unwriting. Later on in the same collection, Wheeling Motel, a roadside shrine to self-loathing, if ever there was one, Wright offers the following observation in epigraphic style and epitaphic tone. The solitary reader sits, surrounded by space, at the departure gate. It's the departure gate of life, folks, with passengers waiting to be called forward towards the blue upper light. Franz Wright's poetry wasn't for everyone. Wright has, a sneered, Wright has a gift for sneered gratitude, for invoking God with the wheedling piety of a three-time loser before a parole board, wrote the critic William Logan in his book Our Savage Art, Poetry and the Civil Tongue. If I can just about interpret that as a compliment, there's no mistake in Logan's intent when he later describes Wright's confessional poetry as the crude, unprocessed sewage of suffering. And if an overindulgence of the soul and a tendency towards emotional entropy was passed on to him by his father, the poet James Wright, it also seems that he inherited his father's sense of spatial awareness and recognition of the prairies and plains lying outside and beyond the printed matter. With his third book, 1963's The Branch Will Not Break, James Wright came ashore on the same tidal surge that brought us Robert Lowell's Life Studies and Allen Ginsberg's Howell, and two years later, Elizabeth Bishop's Questions of Travel as part of the same high watermark. Like many US poets of that mid-generation, Wright Senior was schooled as a formalist then underwent a self-willed, career-defining radicalization, <coughs> slipping off the shackles of tradition and technique to pursue a looser and freer approach based on fragment and phrase rather than syllable count or stress pattern. Never quite ego-inspired enough to be bracketed as confessional and never fully diagnosed with the galloping logeria that would have made him a beat, James Wright was eventually lumped in with the deep image poets, whose rules of engagement derived from a blend of imagism, narrativism, and served with a generous dollop of critical hocus-pocus. This poem, Hook, comes from a later book, To a Blossoming Pear Tree, published in 1972, by which time Wright had settled into a less theoretically anxious mode of address. I was only a young man in those days. On that evening, the cold was so goddamned bitter, there was nothing. Nothing. I was in trouble with a woman, and there was nothing there but me and dead snow. I stood on the street corner in Minneapolis, lashed this way and that. Wind rose from some pit, hunting me. Another bus to St. Paul would arrive in three hours, if I was lucky. Then the young Sue loomed beside me. His scars were just my age. Ain't got no bus here a long time, he said. You got enough money to get home on. What did they do to your hand, I answered. He raised up his hook into the terrible starlight and slashed the wind. Oh, that, he said. I had a bad time with a woman. Here, you take this. 
Did you ever feel a man hold 65 cents in a hook and place it gently in your freezing hand? I took it. It wasn't the money I needed, but I took it. There's a great deal to say about hook, not all of it positive. For example, about its somewhat macho posturing, about its slightly queasy cowboys and Indians ethnographic perspective, about its palpable designs as Keats would have described them. Not to be confused with palpable discord, the surprisingly eloquent explanation offered for Jose Mourinho's departure from Chelsea Football Club earlier this season. But it's the poem's relationship to the unknown, the unsaid, and the margins surrounding it that interest me. Nothing we get at the end of line four. A word repeated in the opening of line five, then again at the end of line six, before Wright identifies or volunteers himself as a solitary existence in a cosmos of dead snow. Not the fluffy white stuff of a frosty and woodland setting, but something lifeless and inert, the page, possibly, pre-poem, the uniformly featureless expanse that confronts every writer hoping to make some worthwhile impression upon it. Wright presses on against the weather, scratching away at the scene setting and the stage directions to the moment of the meeting, offered here in good faith as an autobiographical recollection. In a long tradition that would include, for instance, Keats's La Belle Dame Sans Mercy and Wordsworth's Resolution and Independence, it's an encounter poem, and on this occasion, an encounter that invites both comparison and contrast. Two outsiders, united in their isolation and through their relationship problems, but on the opposite side of a cultural divide. Two reconnaissance parties, if you will, out there in the Midwest, the Native American with his historical grievances, exchanging dialogue with the white frontiersman, pioneer of a new poetic territory. I don't know if ain't got no bus here a long time is genuine or even acceptable, just as I've never been persuaded by the idea that a lack of speech marks somehow democratises a quote or lends it a kind of hipster coolness. To me, it just looks like teenage sulkiness or a high-fiving dad. <laughs> but I do have a soft spot for the phrase to get home on. It reads to me as both innocently authentic and knowingly deployed. Have you got enough narrative to get home on? Is the kindness of strangers and the generosity of the penniless enough for the poem to get by on? Will that unanticipated gesture be enough for the reader to get off on? Probably, the lesser poet would have concluded. Probably not, Wright correctly assumes. The strategy for taking it to the next level is to ask the young Sue an apparently tactless question about his prosthesis without first notifying the reader of its existence. Paraphrase, never mind that you've offered me money which you probably can't afford. Tell me about that strange contraption at the end of your wrist. The reply, oh that, has a comic Python-esque quality that Wright presumably couldn't have foreseen. But he would certainly have been aware of the synergy between here, you take this, and the disembodied Keats fragment, this living hand, which ends, see, here it is, I hold it towards you. Feel is the operative word in that question, asked of both reader and writer in the penultimate stanza. Did you ever experience such a physical sensation? Did you ever experience such an emotional reaction? Not until now was my response the very first time I read the poem. Such a pitiful amount, even allowing for inflation. And although I'm not sure what kind of hook can actually clasp 65 cents worth of coinage, does it have some kind of gripping mechanism or spring-loaded opposable thumb? 
I feel included in the transaction. I feel reached towards across empty cold air. In the same way the end of the poem reaches into an unprinted void. And the empty eye, and the empty eye of the hook and the absence of the hand itself and the anonymity of the giver are all cognate with the undefined, thrice-repeated it of that final terset. Surely a reference to something other and more significant than the actual money, but one left for the reader to deduce. Here's the outline, Wright is saying. You do the colouring in. Poets seem to have an instinctive respect for the brain as a highly suggestible organ just as capable of simultaneously turning its attention towards implied notions as it is towards solidly presented ideas, in fact, incapable of ignoring them, willing and proficient in the art of multitasking to the point where information and insinuation are processed at the same time. Larkin knew and practised this, didn't he, through negation, Negation being the dark matter at the other end of the emission spectrum, a kind of present absence compared with the absent absence of the pristine page or the stanza break. And whether his inclination to frame things in the negative was an involuntary projection of his lugubrious personality or a conscious technique, Larkin walked the secular via negativa of Cemetery Road from beginning to end, consistent and persistent in his manner of approach and direction of travel. And nowhere are the adverse and the negated more apparent than in his exit strategies, those terminating gestures at the end of a Larkin poem, which regularly turn their backs on the reader or offer a blank stare or open a window onto nothingness. Un, not, non, no, never, nothing, nowhere, and other isotopes of the same linguistic element are present in his last lines time and time again. Nothing like something happens anywhere, from I remember, I remember, could have been the poster child for this lecture. But there are dozens more such endings, and this from a relatively modest output, and that's without getting into the constructed apophysis of the pieces themselves. The poem Negative Indicative, dated 1953 by Anthony Thwaite in the 1998 collected poems and marked as unfinished, is an object lesson in negation. Being a single and incomplete sentence, consisting of four main clauses, all leading off with the word never, and each one denying the possibility or repudiating the occurrence of a set of very particular events, which, once detailed and described, become undeniable in the mind. In those terms, we might think of negative indicative as a dry run or dress rehearsal for Larkin's masterpiece of negation, Talking in Bed, written some seven years later, a poem so tangled in disavowals and disclaimers that it's difficult to locate either end of the thread, let alone untie the knot. Talking in bed ought to be easiest. Lying together there goes back so far, an emblem of two people being honest. Yet more and more time passes silently, Outside, the wind's incomplete unrest builds and disperses clouds about the sky and dark towns heap up on the horizon. None of this cares for us. Nothing shows why, at this unique distance from isolation, it becomes still more difficult to find words at once true and kind, or not untrue, and not unkind. From the duplicity of the title, given that the poem is actually about not talking in bed, through the modifying ought in line one, via the pun on lying in line two, by way of the dishonesty of the rhymes and the refusal of the wind to be properly or reliably restless, 
and the capitalised non and nothing announcing two new nihilistic sentences in line eight, we finally arrive at the poem's famously inverted finale. And not only does Larkin conclude in a negative frame of mind, it's one he defaults to after first offering a kinder, politer version of the same thing. Simplifying the terms, it could be argued that a true word equals a not untrue word, and a kind word is the same thing as a not unkind word. But this isn't fractional mathematics, it's language. And in language, the multiplication of two negatives does not produce a positive. Isn't there also something legal, legalistically pedantic about that final line, the kind of miserly and reluctant qualifying statement we might expect from a thin-lipped barrister, a phrase reset in plausible deniability, typical of the adversarial posture, loading even the slightest mealy-mouthed concession with counterclaim. The Americans don't really get Larkin. I'm speaking generally, more or less, by and large, in my experience. When they survey British poetry, if they survey British poetry, he's a landmark that has to be mapped rather than explored. It's hardly a surprise to a country always keen to distance itself from the restraints and residues of a colonial past, Larkin must carry a strong whiff of historical fustiness. In Britain, he's occasionally credited as breaking the mould, or at least reshaping it. Here was a voice from the suburbs, even the provinces, the voice of the professional middle classes rather than the intellectual elite, signalling a shift in poetic sensibilities. But that was a top-down view, a view from above. Because from below, Larkin appeared and sounded like another product from the privileged end of a cockeyed education system, a poet with a plummy accent, snooty pretensions, and, as it turned out, some pretty snotty opinions. At school, he was marketed to us as the man next door. Next door to who, we wanted to know. Next door to whom, <laughs> came the reply. James Wright's breakthrough publication, The Branch Will Not Break, was pretty much contemporaneous with Larkin's The Wits and Weddings. They might as well have been from different planets, let alone different continents. In comparison with the spikes and surges in the developmental graphs of many late 19th and 20th century American poets, the gradient of Larkin's poetic growth is roughly in line with the steady evolutionary incline of British poetry in general. But let's leave him be for now, just as he imagined himself taking leave of himself in the last couplet of the Winter Palace appropriately effaced, empty and absent, concluding, then there will be nothing I know. My mind will fold into itself, like fields, like snow. Here's the Arcadian poet George Mackay Brown with the last lines of his poem, The Poet, from his 1965 collection, The Year of the Whale. Under the last dead lamp, when all the dancers and masks had gone inside, his cold stare returned to its true task, the interrogation of silence. I'm inclined to think that, of all people, Mackay Brown would have known about the questioning of noiselessness. His forays into the wider, louder world were few and far between, and even on Orkney itself, he was not an inhabitant of the capital and relative metropolis of Kirkwall, population circa 9,000, but a lifelong resident of Stromness, the main island's second city. Mackay Brown's poems are islands in themselves, atolls and archipelagos of words surrounded by seascape, or as standing stones set among treeless moorlands, or the archaeological remains of Neolithic homesteads abutting wind-raked beaches. 
In both subject and style, Mackay Brown would seem to share common ground and common bonds with Seamus Heaney. That manifesto phrase, the interrogation of silence, immediately calls to mind Heaney's well-known whatever you say, say nothing, sequence from North. And for me, also resonates with the less recognised Storm on the Island from Heaney's debut collection, Death of a Naturalist. Less recognised even to the poet himself, perhaps, given that it didn't survive the early cull of selected poems 1965 to 1975 and wasn't gathered into later reapings. We are prepared. We build our houses squat, sink walls in rock and roof them with good slate. This wizened earth has never troubled us with hay, so, as you see, there are no stacks or stooks that can be lost, nor are there trees which might prove company when it blows full blast. You know what I mean. Leaves and branches can raise a tragic chorus in a gale so that you listen to the thing you fear, forgetting that it pummels your house too. But there are no trees, no natural shelter. You might think that the sea is company, exploding comfortably down on the cliffs, but no. When it begins, the flung spray hits the very windows, spits like a tame cat turned savage. We just sit tight while wind dives and strafes invisibly. Space is a salvo. We are bombarded by the empty air. Strange, it is a huge nothing that we fear. George Mackay Brown's poems could hardly be described as apolitical, given the extent to which they voice the histories of a people and a place caught in the cultural weather front circulating between Britain, Scotland and Scandinavia. But the currents and turbulences that buffet Heaney's storm on the island are far less implicit. With words like blast, exploding and strafes pointing directly towards a violent past and prophetically, as we would read them later, towards an even more violent future. Space is a salvo, we are bombarded by the empty air, is the penultimate sentence in a long list of descriptive statements that read like a blog post from inside a besieged community. Yet what follows, by way of conclusion, is decidedly equivocal, both damning and diplomatic, both complaining and consoling, strange, it is a huge nothing that we fear. On the one hand, there's absolutely nothing to fear, says Heaney, or the thing we fear, which thinks of itself as huge, is nothing, or it's strange because our fear actually amounts to a huge nothing. On the other hand, what we fear most is being or becoming nothing, or worse, what we fear can only be described in terms of a huge nothing, and there's nothing more fearful than the unknown. Grendel was always more terrifying before we met him, his mother more so. In those terms, and there are certainly other permutations and interpretations, Storm on the Island forms a balancing act and a bridging measure, a poised straddling of the Irish Sea that the ambassadorial Heaney regularly managed to perform, no matter how much the forces of literary tectonics pushed and pulled at his allegiances and aspirations over the course of his writing life. That political equilibrium is both prefigured and recalled by the manner in which the poem functions at a literal and metaphorical level throughout, before it leaves us standing at the cliff edge of that final line staring into the constructed abyss of ambiguity. Despite an appearance of physical continuousness in its manuscript form, giving it the look of a legal proclamation rather than arranged verse, the medieval poem Pearl is riven with gaps and intervals in which the imagination can fly and float. Foremost of such gaps 
is the river or stream that divides this world from the next and the bereaved dreamer from his lost pearl, an unswimmable caesura of water across which all dialogue is conducted and one which finally shocks the dreamer back into consciousness as he makes his bid for the far bank. The water in the poem seems as translucent and as tempting as the pearl herself, a vision of shimmering whiteness into which the dreamer pours his heart and onto which he projects his feelings. I'm discussing pearl in this context, not just because it has a human aperture and unbearable loss at its heart, but because of another perceived absence, this one in the fabric of the text itself, a surmised omission that has exercised the minds of academics and translators alike. As well as being a poem, Pearl is a veritable abacus of symbolic numbers, not least in its 12-line stanzas and its 1,212 lines, referencing the 12 by 12 furlongs of heavenly Jerusalem with its 12 gates and the 12 tribes of Israel as described in the book of Revelation. But it doesn't all add up, because for all its meticulous geometrical crafting, there seems to be an error in the 40th verse, which carries only 11 lines, an omission highlighted by the fact that the poem has a tightly supervised rhyme scheme, which appears to have misfired at line 472. Some later hand, like a tut-tutting schoolteacher, has even inked a tut-tutting cross in the margin, with an accusatory prong stabbing the text at the missing line. Speculation and conjecture regarding line 472 abounds, including conspiracy theories worthy of a Dan Brown novel. And for those people listening on podcast, I resisted the temptation of inserting air quotes around the word worthy. For some, it's a scribal error made when the copyist transferred the poem from one manuscript to another. For others, it's an intentional omission, part of a trinity of irregularities that includes a hypernumerical stanza in section 15, like an addition to the poem's vertebral column designed to bring it to its necessary numerical height, and a rupture in the chain of concatenation. In effect, a failure of baton passing between verses and sections, the kind of botched handover that will be familiar to anyone with an interest in British relay running. For my money, and for what that money's worth, it's an honest mistake. One that the scribe, working on a 36 lines to a page basis, has gone some way towards noticing towards the bottom of the facing sheet when he's had to shoehorn five lines into the space of four. But intentional or unintentional, I'm more curious about the way that interested parties have responded to the apparent omission. J.R.R. Tolkien, who I've come to think of as the W.G. Grace of medieval translation, inserts a line of dots at line 472. In cricketing terms, He isn't drawn into improvising a stroke, but instead lifts the bat and lets the delivery go through outside off stump. In the scorebook, it's a dot ball, 32 dots in fact, compared with the six dots in Malcolm Andrew and Ronald Waldron's direct transcription, who similarly offer no shot, and employ a standard ellipsis in their prose translation to signal the presumed omission. Others, however, have been unable to resist the temptation. Mary Boroff, in her verse translation, ad-libs with, I cannot but think your words are wrong, thus filling the gap and finding a rhyming companion for the unpartnered among. Jane Draycott, in a more impressionistic and contemporized remaking improvises by stretching the canvas of existing text to fill the size of the stanzaic frame, allowing 
at my words, it seems to me, to chime with, the grace among you there must be. And Victor Watts, in an edition somewhere between transcription and translation, has gone all out, as they say, supposing both the content and the style with, methinks thou speakest now full wrong, within square brackets. Missing line or no, for my own part, I've come to respect a momentary pause in the text, since it acts as a silent prelude to what I consider to be the most felicitous line in the whole poem, according to its complicated rubric, a line semantically, sonically, and syntactically perfect, and one whose alliterative asterism includes three binary stars in the form of the Middle English H, oscillating between consonant and vowel. Thyself in heaven over high thy heave. Thyself in heaven over high thy heave. Translation, you raise yourself too high in heaven. Translation, get over yourself. A few quick flashcards as examples of other absences and omissions, beginning with Paul Muldoon's The Otter, which proceeds with all the characteristic guile and craftiness we've come to expect of a Muldoon poem, and with the cunning and slipperiness we would expect of the creature itself. The rhyme pattern alone says as much. The call of desk at the end of line one, not finding its response until esk, the poem's final syllable. The rhymes diffusing outwards like concentric ripples emanating from one central couplet where it and hit stand face to face at the contact point of the poem's symmetry where we find, lo and behold, a mirror. It's a device which reflects another of the poem's parallels, namely the secretive blackness of a blotter that refuses to carry the impression of any betraying letter or phrase, and the author's own refusal from the outset to name names, his S, leaving the reader to fill in the blanks and make the connections, be they personal or political, or perhaps poetical, given how Muldoon's otter rises to meet him, not unlike the old woman who rises toward her day after day like a terrible fish in Sylvia Plath's poem entitled Lo and Behold, Mirror. In Philip Metra's Abu Grave Arias, any unlikely singing drifting along the wings and landings of Baghdad's notorious prison has been reduced to the testimonies of serving US soldiers, abused prisoners, and quotes from operating procedure manuals, then further reduced and stripped down through military-style redaction and censorship. The vetoing becomes increasingly severe as the sequence evolves, from the blues of Lane Makota on page one, where the redacted passages already appear as blindfolds and gags, to the final piece, presented as a total erasure of voice, a kind of chalk outline of punctuation marks from the crime scene, horribly telling in its inability to tell. And I might quickly call forward the poetry of Emily Dickinson as evidence for the defense, a poet whose quiet, circumscribed existence in the small town of Amherst, Massachusetts, makes George Mackay Brown look like a mashup of Phileas Fogg and Bear Grylls. I'd always thought of those characteristic dashes that separate Dickinson's lines and individual words on occasions as a kind of catch-all gesture, casual and impatient even, designed to abbreviate the fussiness of conventional punctuation and expedite each poem's argument. But over time, I've come to see them as something more transcendent, gorgeous nothings indeed, an elevated form of musical notation 
creating momentary suspensions, little leaps and trapezes, wing beats, airborne cognitive deferrals, miniature magic carpet rides or micro journeys on the palm of the poet's own hand, during which the reader glides from one idea to the next without ever touching the floor, without having to steeplechase along a series of commas, or pause at the amber light of a semicolon, or totter over the cattle grid of an ellipsis, or being wheel clamped by a full stop. Here's the poem We Play at Paste in Dickinson's original hand. With her heart in her mouth, on a wing and a prayer, this was one of a quartet of poems she posted to Thomas Wentworth Higginson on that, with that first letter, wondering if my verse is alive, confiding to him, courtesy of several more of those enigmatic dashes, should you think it breathed, and had you the leisure to tell me, I should feel quick gratitude. Should you think it breathed, and here it is, wearing the gas mask of print, as it appears in Thomas H. Johnson's arrangement of the complete poems, 1955. We play at paste, till qualified for pearl, then drop the paste and deem ourselves a fool. The shapes, though, were similar, and our new hands learned gem tactics practicing sands. For reasons of convenience, comprehension and cultural conformity, Dickinson's dashes have, over the years, been passed through the editorial sausage machine to become homogenized products of equal length and thickness, as if to fit some EU directive on standardization. But it's hard to resist playing the voyeuristic graphologist or amateur calligrapher Noticing how much of the original punctuation, here it is from the same poem, enlarged and isolated, varies in shape, size, shade, orientation and emphasis. I'm wondering how much of Dickinson's agonised confrontation of a final revelation of horrible nothingness, as Ted Hughes put it, we might infer from the full range of her compositional ticks and track marks. I'm tempting to think that we should consider those original scribblings, fascicles and packages as works of visual art, pictograms for which printed text has no real equivalent. I want to finish by reading a poem, a poem whose mournful subject and unsettling tone is entirely commissioned by the breathed, breathed spaces and visual silences which hold it together and force it apart, and do so entirely appropriately, given the drowning at its centre and the wind instrument of its making. This is Kevin, Reed, Kevin Young's Reed Song. What any god would to hold you do. Hands round the neck of you, I blew breaths into your mouth, hoping some sounds would come out. You, the barest blue. Believed I did, I could save somehow you. You who had swayed as the tallest grasses will, then silent fell into deep reeds. In me, everything sank. I have heard tell of men who sing for snakes, slow, who can make even death bow. What once a world was, was now only this faint music made by the moon. Your eyelids grown thick, the world loud, I could not rescue you into. When I look too long at rivers, you are there, your tightening hair. It is then 
I pick up my horn, play again your name to whomever ever will hear. Do not board that train beyond. Stay hereabouts while I hold you, speaking breath, kissing your woodwind mouth. Dusk gathers around us like a crowd, till I can no more sing out. Thank you very much.